Hey guys, hello, hello. Do you know, I just realised, I think I've uh, had the same Bible readings at four services I've been at today, I've preached at three of them, I just realised they were the two Bible readings at, my, at our wedding 20 years ago, so there you go, I married very young, so just in case, you're all thinking, you're, how could you have been married 20 years, but anyway, there you go. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story uh, about that. I asked the wrong people, we asked the wrong people to read both those two readings. Uh, a friend of Victoria's to read the Ephesians 5 one and a friend of mine to read the Genesis 2 one. And my friend got to the end of Genesis 2 and that last verse about being naked. And he paused on the word naked for about 10 seconds <laughs> and just stared at me. And the whole place was in. Anyway, it, it, uh, be very careful who you invite to do Bible readings at your wedding. Anyway, be very careful who you ask to preach at your wedding. Anyway, uh, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this book of Ephesians that we have been studying together. And we thank you now uh, for the way in this second half of the book we've been taught so many things about what it means to live a life worthy of the calling we've received in Christ. And as we think on the topic of marriage tonight... Uh, We pray for those of us who are married that we will listen to this uh, and put it into practice in our marriages. For those of us who are not married, uh, we pray that if by your will we are married in the future, we will hear this teaching. Uh, But we pray for all of us that we will be challenged and encouraged to hear not so much about the love in human marriages, but the love that Christ has for his church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So of all the uh, topics for our Bible passage to land on today, uh, we come to marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, which is very, very topical at the moment. Uh, You cannot escape talking about marriage in Australia at the moment. Even if you're at school and you're not allowed to vote at uh, my son Sam's school, there are people going around putting rainbow stickers up saying vote yes. I don't know what they're hoping to achieve because none of them can vote. Uh, But anyway, it's very topical at the moment. Uh, I got my postal vote form in the letterbox on the first day I was coming I think I may have been the first person in Australia to vote so there you go uh, my claim to fame Uh, but actually I don't want us to get distracted by all that today we've spoken enough about that already Uh, we spoke about that a few weeks ago Uh, I actually want us to forget about all of that for 20 or 30 minutes Uh, we've spoken enough about it forget about all the political business I mean this, this passage is very relevant to that question I thought should I speak on that from this passage today because this explains why marriage is between a man and a woman that is the way God created us and the way he created marriage but if we just talked about our current debate I thought that would be really really sad uh, because we'd fail to see what this passage really wants us to see about what marriage is not what society wants it to be but about what God says marriage is and what marriage should look like but even aside from the current controversy whenever the topic of marriage comes up in the scriptures and whenever it comes up in church or in our gospel teams when we meet together it creates mixed emotions in us Uh, and that's because none of us ever on any topic comes to the bible as like a clean slate none of us uh, come just with you know a blank slate ready for god to write his word on us Uh, we come with all sorts of baggage on any topic but i think on this topic more than most Uh, because all of us when we hear the word marriage we think of great joy and we probably think of pain 
that is the reality of uh, marriage in our fallen world. We've had a rush of weddings in our church lately. Uh, in fact, hello, Joe and Hannah, welcome back. There you go. One week and you're here. There you go. Isn't that wonderful? But there you go. And every wedding is a wonderful day. I have not yet been to a wedding where people said afterwards, oh, that wasn't a very good day, you know, and, and so forth. I've, I have not yet had a wedding like that. Uh, I, maybe, anyway, no, I won't say anything there. Um, every marriage has a wonderful wedding day. That is, that is just a reality. But then the reality then down the track is that every marriage goes through difficult times. Uh, and for many of us talking about marriage brings up not the joy of wedding days but the hurt of broken relationships or the pain of relationships that we wished for that didn't happen or that didn't work out how we thought they might or the present pain of difficult marriages or the present pain of friends or family who are in the midst of difficult marriages and we need to deal with those things carefully and lovingly and biblically But the thing is, when the Bible talks about marriage, it actually wants us to raise our eyes above earthly marriages. So for the 80% here at this congregation who are not married, uh, you might be thinking, oh, now I can switch off for the next 20 minutes. No. What this passage tells you is this is actually as relevant for you as it is for people who are married or who are about to be married or whatever. You see, because what this passage today does, and I want you to get this if you get nothing else, is it says, as you look at earthly marriages, God wants you to think about something far greater than earthly marriages. What I would call our eternal marriage. You see, our earthly marriages, the Bible says, are like illustrations or shadows of the marriage relationship that really matters and that is the relationship between Christ and his church see the bible tells us that every christian will be married in the end every christian will be married in the end those who never marry in this life will be married in the end those who suffer broken marriages in this life will be married in the end those who are happily or unhappily married in this life will be married in the end every christian will be married and not just married but will have all their needs fulfilled. I'm talking about a blissful, perfect marriage. You see, the Bible tells us all sorts of stories about human marriages. So you you read about Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Mary and David and Bathsheba and all these people, and they are nearly all, in fact, I think they are universally all, stories of dysfunctional people in largely dysfunctional marriages. That is, the marriages in the Bible are very like the marriages in our church. And the marriages of anyone in this world because marriages are made up of two sinners coming together and trying to work out how this works. But right through the Bible we're told all of these flawed human marriages are a shadow of something far more incredible. And it's the story of how God, the bridegroom, takes a people to be his bride, to be his wife. And when Jesus came, he picked up the story and he said, I am the bridegroom. And he said, you, anyone who follows Jesus, I have washed you clean. And when I come back in glory, you will be presented to me, the church, as my pure bride. Not pure because you're pure in the way you live, but pure because I have washed you clean by my death for you. So if we turn to our passage, 
Yes, this is full of sort of practical advice for marriage, uh, and we'll get to that. But then right at the bottom, at verse 32, look at verse 32 of chapter 5, he says this. He says, the mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So saying all this talk about husbands and wives, yeah, it's relevant to you if you're a husband or if you're a wife, or if you might be a husband or you might be a wife one day in the future. But Paul wants us to remember that our marriages, even the best of them, are only a shadow of that marriage that really matters, the relationship of Christ and his church. So the main point of this passage is not husbands do this, wives do that. The main point is to remind each of us of how, look at verse 25, halfway through, of how Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And so even before I get into all the practical stuff in Ephesians, I want to remind you of this, no matter what your baggage with relationships and marriage, Jesus has washed us clean. And the wedding day we should look forward to much more, even than our own earthly wedding day. The wedding day we should really look forward to is the one Jesus talks about in the book of Revelation, when he says when he returns, his church will be presented to him, perfect, to live with him forever. And on that day, you will be truly fulfilled if you are a follower of Jesus. So we have to keep that future heavenly perspective on marriage in mind. Paul doesn't just write this as guidance to us. He wants us to think about that first and foremost. But then with that in mind, come now with me uh, to Ephesians 5, because what we have here is God's picture for what he wants our marriages, and if yours might be in the future perhaps, I don't know, what he wants our marriages to look like now. If we want our earthly marriages to be what God wants them to be, then we need to model them on that perfect marriage. And it's all very, very simple, isn't it? Look there from verse 22. The simple picture God has for marriage is the wife is called to submit to her husband in the same way that the church submits to Christ and the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And then it all gets summarised down there at verse 33. He says, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. Very simple. I can finish the sermon there. We're done. No. It's simple and it's wonderful and it's terribly politically incorrect isn't it why is it so politically incorrect for anyone who's grown up any time since the 1960s it's because of one word and what is that word submission people say does that demean women and does that question the equality of men and women before god so so the question is does it And the answer is, very, very simply, no, it doesn't. We have to think to understand this, what is submission? So some people immediately say, oh, so the Bible says a wife should be seen and not heard. The the Bible wants to put us back in the dark ages. The wife has to do all the worst jobs and bring a husband beer and chips on the couch whenever he wants it. You you know, there's the Bible's picture of marriage. If that is the case, your senior minister's marriage is a failure. Uh, I am not bought beer and chips on the couch. I might have to talk to Victoria about that. No, um, (laughs) scrub that from the tape. No, you see, that is just an unhelpful caricature. That's all that is. And it is nothing like what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about submission. 
Submitting is something all Christians do voluntarily. We make an active decision to submit where it is appropriate. What submitting is, is accepting the leadership of someone else in a certain relationship. So the Bible calls on us to submit in all sorts of relationships. We are all to submit to civilian authorities, to the government. The Bible says that. That's what you should do. Christians submit to leaders in the church. Children are called to submit to their parents. Every Christian is called on to submit in all sorts of situations, as well as to exercise responsibility and authority in all sorts of situations. But being in authority does not make someone better than someone else. I submit to the policeman, my brother over here, he loves when I say this because he's a policeman, but I submit to Sam when he's in police uniform and working and he gives me a legal order. I submit to him. That does not mean I think Sam is smarter than me. It it does not mean I think Sam is better than me. It does not mean I think... I don't even think he's stronger than me, frankly. you, You see my point. See, I have some authority in the church because of my position as a minister. Not as much authority as I'd like sometimes, frankly. But but I have some authority in the church in my position as a minister. But that does not mean I am worth more than you because of that. And in fact, if I resigned, it's not my intention, but if I resigned tonight and then said, all right, you can appoint Troy, actually, he's not allowed to be, but, you you know, um, and he he can't talk at the moment. But anyway, no, (laughs) if I appointed someone else, I would then have to submit to them. Because I'm not the ministry anymore. I would submit to the person who's over me in the Lord. Does that make me less of a person? Does that make me less equal in God's eyes? It shouldn't. And if it does, there's something wrong with me. You see, I'm not worth less because I'm not submitted to anymore. It's so silly, this idea that submitting demeans you or, or makes me worthless, especially because who is the great example of someone who voluntarily submits? Who is the great example? Jesus. Jesus is the one. He, God the Son is absolutely equal with God the Father. He is absolutely equal, but he voluntarily submits to his Father to bring about our salvation. And he does that out of love. And now no one says Jesus has demeaned himself. He's now worth less than he was. Does anyone think that? If you do, you're, it's heresy. Jesus is still absolutely God and yet he voluntarily submits himself to his father. You see, submission does not make someone less than someone else in value. But even knowing that, this call to submission still worries us because no one wants to be ruled over, especially in a marriage relationship. So when we read verse 23 there, look at verse 23, where it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, we cringe at that a little, don't we? But I think that's because we tend to have a worldly view of headship and a worldly view of authority when we read that. That is not what this is talking about. You have to read on. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of the body. See, the husband is head not in the sense of worldly authority. He's not a head who has authority like a headmaster at a school. 
but in the sense of Christ's headship of the church, an authority that takes responsibility and acts itself out in love and service. That's the headship Christ shows. And like the church, a wife's submission is not demanded, it's volunteered and it's lovingly given and it's certainly not enforced by the head. See, nowhere in the Bible is the husband told, make sure your wife submits. God talks to the wife about her role. He doesn't talk to the husband about her role. The tyrant who tries to force submission on his wife is a fool. Worse than that, he is ungodly and he needs to be challenged and rebuked by his Christian brothers and sisters. It's so important to grasp this. The husband is not called to lead in a worldly sense, but in a Christ-like sense. Which brings us to the call on the husband in verse 25, which I actually think is the really outrageous and crazy part of the passage. Look there. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Husbands are called to die on a cross for their wife. That's what it's saying. It's saying, husbands, you love your wife in the way Christ did, which is by giving up your life for them and it's like he sort of says that's too hard for you to grasp so I'll give you an easier thing at verse 28 where he says in the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies I mean that's radical enough and he's saying because that's the theological reality when, when a man and a woman are married they become one person in God's eyes one flesh and he quotes Genesis 2 at that point but, but that's easier to love your wife as your own body because everyone loves themselves but, but that's easier than to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Do you see how radical this call is on men who would dare to be husbands? It's a positive command. Do, do you notice the command is not lead, by the way? Nowhere are men commanded to lead their, their wives. It's to love her, whatever it costs you. And it's especially a call in the context for the husband to work to encourage his wife in godliness. See, a husband's job in God's eyes is to present his wife and present his children holy and blameless to Christ. One writer I read said, the husband's job is to prepare his wife and children for the marriage that really matters. See what he's saying? He's saying his husband's job is to prepare his wife and children to be ready for Christ, to be ready for heaven, to be ready to be holy and blameless in Christ's sight. See, the thing is, if we use the world's definitions of headship and submission, then the marriage described here would be horrible. But Jesus says, we don't lead like the world leads. We serve rather than be served, Mark 10, 45. The first becomes last and the last becomes first. That's what Jesus said. And that is the beauty of the Bible's picture of marriage. Now, I'm going to move from theory to practice in a second. Uh, but there's one other thing that needs to be said. We need to see, and I think this is the really hard teaching of Ephesians 5. We need to see that these calls are not dependent on the other person. It's not love her when she makes it easy for you it's not love her when she submit and it's not 
submit when you agree with every decision he makes it's love like christ and submit in everything that's what the scripture says and that's where it gets really hard putting this into practice when the other person is not when the other person is not getting it right in 1 peter 3 sarah is commended for submitting to abraham precisely when he wasn't a great husband but i want to say i think the husband's side is much more not dependent than the wife's side i'll explain what i mean you see the love of christ is totally not dependent on the other person isn't it what does it say in romans about jesus jesus's love for us he loved us even while we were his enemies even while we were opposed to him christ loves the unlovely if you like to love like christ is to love even when not loved in return you see i think a wife can demand of her christian husband that she must love him he must love her i got that around the wrong way maybe a freudian slip anyway do you see what i'm saying to love like christ is totally unconditional and that's the call on a christian husband and so a christian wife can demand that her husband love her whereas as i said before the wife's submission is voluntarily given and no husband has the right to demand it from his wife the scriptures call and a god calls on a wife to submit to her husband but it's not the husband's place to demand it and i'll make two further sort of caveats on that first is all submission comes secondary to our submission to christ see it's the same with the government isn't it the scriptures say submit to the government but if the government calls on you to do something that is against the law of christ you should say i follow jesus not man and so if the government you know if this same-sex marriage thing happens and just say they said churches have to marry uh, same-sex couples well at that point i would say i'm not going to do it because i follow jesus not the government i don't care what law you make i'm not going to do it because i follow jesus not the law well in the same way if a husband's call is inconsistent with following jesus then jesus comes first so if a husband wants his wife to sin uh, to deny jesus to be immoral to lie to neglect her children or or something like that then she is called to submit to jesus and not to her husband and that's especially important for people who find themselves in the situation where they are a christian and they're married to a non-believer not a position you should put yourself in voluntarily but one people end up in sometimes that then leads to my second very difficult issue of domestic violence or domestic abuse in recent times there's been media coverage and if you are a social media person you may have seen this trying to tie a christian view of marriage to domestic violence or domestic abuse and especially actually trying to say that this passage encourages domestic violence or domestic abuse now the statistics in that abc report if you saw it were actually called out and people pointed out the statistics actually proved the opposite of what they were trying to say uh, that actually the studies showed that church attending evangelical christians have the lowest rates of domestic violence but even so we should not be naive because the church is made up of sinners like us uh, and given that the church is full of sinners like us domestic abuse happens in christian marriages uh, and just like it does in non-christian marriages and this teaching has been abused to condone domestic abuse 
And so husbands have demanded that their wives submit in exactly the way I pointed out this passage doesn't call on them to do. So you have to be very, very clear that where a husband abuses his wife, or a wife, her husband for that matter, but more commonly, where a husband abuses his wife, whether emotionally or verbally or physically, that is not headship. That is not what the Bible is talking about. That is abuse. And it needs to be dealt with by the law and it needs to be rebuked by brothers and sisters in Christ. And where a person is in that situation, they should be encouraged to seek help uh, and even to separate. That might actually be the most loving thing to do for the other person and especially for children. If you're in that situation, please talk to someone about it. But do not mishear Ephesians 5 as condoning what Jesus condemns. But coming back to our passage, ironically, the Bible gets called, the Bible's picture gets called traditional marriage. So you hear that a lot at the moment, don't you? People talk about traditional marriage. Uh, And I say it's ironic because it actually, the Bible actually stands against the most common form of traditional marriage throughout history and throughout the world still today. You see, people don't realise this, but the, rad- the Bible's call here is actually incredibly radical because the most common form of marriage in every culture in the world today, as well as right throughout history, uh, is the wife serves and the husband leads. The husband leads and the wife serves. That's most of history, that's most of the world, that is Islam and that is just about every culture. But Ephesians 5 says, no, 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 that is worldly thinking. The husband loves and serves. That's his job. But the Bible also stands against what gets called the modern idea of marriage, where women and men have just become interchangeable, and so in the end, no one leads and no one serves. Sadly, that is the picture of marriage our world peddles. It's just about me being happy and my needs being met, and when that's not happening, well, I get a divorce. And hasn't that been a resounding success for our society? Now the Bible's picture actually leaves them both miles behind. The wife submits voluntarily to her husband's self-sacrificial loving service. That is what God desires for us in our marriages. That is the picture in our broken, imperfect way that we should work towards. Well, that's the theory. The question, of course, is how does that work out in practice? What does God's pattern look like once you get down to the minutia uh, in the reality of life? Do you notice how the Bible doesn't set out all sorts of laws on this, just these general principles? And sometimes over the years, people try and say, oh, well, the Bible says you should do this and I should do that. And most of those things are actually cultural. They're not biblical. There is nothing in the Bible that says husbands should mow lawns and wives should cook dinner. That is just cultural. It's not biblical. If that's how it happens to work out in in your marriage, well, good luck to you. But it's not biblical. And I think that's intentional. It's because we're all different. And, and, And every marriage is two different people coming together. And they have to work out the principles in the way that suits them and their personalities and who they are. So here I'm just going to recommend two books. The first is this book. It's called Married for God. And it's by Christopher Ashe. And this is the book I give out to any couple who I am marrying or who I get anyone else to give out to any couple they are marrying. Uh, And I think it's the best book with practical advice for Christians to think about what what a Christian marriage should look like. 
So that's that one, uh, Married for God by Christopher Ashe. Uh, and this other book I want to recommend is called God's Good Design and it's by Claire Smith and this is for you if you want to think about what the Bible says about men and women and how uh, God has created us equal but different and I think this is the best book on that topic thinking through all the different Bible passages about men and women and our place in the family and in the church and all those sort of questions so there's two books I want to recommend if you want to come and have a look at them afterwards you can but anyway in this book in Christopher Ashe's book uh, when he gets to the practicalities to sort of say to a couple getting married what does this look like this Ephesians 5 model of marriage uh, he starts off by saying I want to say what it doesn't look like and he gives four distortions four ways we can distort God's picture for marriage and I've put them there on your outlines have a look on the second column of your outline and the first distortion is the selfish husband the tyrant the husband who demands that his wife submit to him but is far from loving and he's a bully who just wants his wife to serve him Uh, and as I said before far too many men have justified their emotional or even physical abuse of their wives by saying I'm just leading that is not acceptable it is not biblical and Jesus condemns it and it needs to be repented of and I say again do you notice there is no actual command to lead in Ephesians 5 there is a recognition of God's order but the command is to love second distortion that Christopher Ash suggests is the overbearing wife If a husband who bullies his wife distorts God's picture for what marriage should look like, so does the wife who desires to rule over her husband. It's sad, but people who love being the boss, and you see see this at work or at uni or at school, don't you? The person who wants to be the boss, who likes to be above other people, how do they get there? By tearing other people down. And so there is nothing worse, well there is worse, but it's a horrible thing in a marriage when there is a wife who belittles and badmouths her husband and we see it as normal it's been normalized for us because it's every american sitcom every american sitcom the humor is based on the fact the husband is hopeless from the simpsons on if you like everyone the husband is hopeless and the wife then belittles him and mocks him and makes fun of him in front of other people that is so sad And how far is that from verse 33 where it says each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. The third distortion might be a bit surprising but it's the opposite of that. It's the caricature of what Ephesians 5 is saying. It's the doormat wife. The wife who fades away into the background to be seen and not heard. Uh, If you think that's what Ephesians 5 is saying then you haven't read any other passage in the Bible about marriage. You haven't read Genesis 2, that was our first reading before, or Proverbs 31, go and read that in the Old Testament and other passages. The Bible sees marriage, first of all, as a partnership, as two people coming together to complement one another. That is to help one another grow and to help one another be what God wants them to be. The the wife is called to use her God-given gifts and talents and intelligence to complement her husband. The godly model of marriage is two people working together as equal partners, yet recognising God's good order. Sometimes it's a hard line to draw, being an active partner without usurping the husband's role, but wives should walk that line, not the doormat line. 
The fourth distortion that I think is sadly too common is what Christopher Ashe calls the abdicator husband. Uh, The husband who just gives up on his responsibilities and leaves it all to his wife. And sadly, I think that is the most common thing I have to rebuke in Christian men and in myself. Uh, And even more sadly, what often happens is the tyrant husband goes together with the abdicator husband in one person. And so that they're a tyrant in the sense of demanding things of their wife physically and and, and just in the running of the household and all that sort of thing, while abdicating responsibility for caring for their wife emotionally and leading their family spiritually. I think that is the most common failing in Christian men, and all men for that matter. The husband's job is a hard one. It is Christ-like love. Christ-like love and leadership of the family, physical, emotional, spiritual... And sadly, what men often do, what husbands often do, what fathers often do, is retreat into their work. And so they say, well, I'm putting money on the table, but then fail to care for their families spiritually and emotionally. How many men leave the spiritual nurture of the family to their wives? I don't want to ask you this question here because I know many of the younger members of this congregation's parents. But if in your family the model was that it was mum that talked to you, only mum that talk to you about the bible and about prayer and that sort of thing I want to say to you don't let that be the model if you are blessed with a family one day it is a, a father's duty to raise their children to know and love Jesus look just look on to what we're going to look at next week in chapter six just flick over to chapter six down to verse four and it's interesting in the part about parents and children he doesn't say mothers and fathers bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord he says fathers bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord is a father's job to raise his children to know Jesus it's a father's responsibility he shares it with his wife but it's a father's responsibility in the end so men please hear that challenge even if it's for the future so that's four distortions what about the positive side well every married couple has to work it out for themselves based on God's model that's what the Bible says Husbands need to keep reminding themselves every day, my model is Christ. My job is to love my wife. I lead by serving her. And so he needs to ask all the time, how am I going at laying down my life for my wife? And as we fall short of that standard, because we all will, well, we need to ask for God's help, sometimes his forgiveness and often our wives' forgiveness. And wives need to keep working daily at respecting your husband encouraging him supporting him and as you fall short of that standard because we all will as you fall short ask for God's help and sometimes his forgiveness and sometimes your husband's forgiveness and now to the 80 percent of people here who are not married what about those who are not married that's what my notes say next so now I'm going to speak to you so if you'd fade it out there come back now first thing I want to say to you is remember that marriage is not the be-all and end-all. Remember that. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that it is better to remain single, if we can, without being ungodly, it is better to remain single because it frees us to do more for the gospel. No one believes that until they've been married 15 years and then they believe it. That's the reality. So you've just got to take it on trust from God's word first and me second. But if you are able to remain single without 
being involved in sexual immorality God says that is actually a better course because you are more liberated to do more gospel work than you would be if you were married and had to worry about three kids and what they're getting up to I speak from personal experience but the big thing I want to say is remember that marriage does not complete you Tom Cruise was lying he lies about most things it seems marriage does not complete you and the sad thing is if you think I need this other person in order to be complete you are destining your marriage for major issues because the other person can't do that only Jesus completes you that's the thing you've got to remember what in the end marriage is secondary what really matters is do you know Christ that's what completes you as a person never forget that but for someone who is considering marriage well Ephesians 5 should influence who you look for shouldn't it if I can be very frank and the same way it should influence who we should strive to be see women should look for men who are Christ-like leaders that is what a woman should look for in a husband look for men who love the Lord and who already serve other people that's the mark of a man who will be a good husband look for men whose love for Christ already shows in the way they treat other people and men married or otherwise that is what you should be striving to be if you want to be attractive to a godly Christian woman then work at being godly and if they don't think that's attractive then they're the one with the problem women should look for men who are Christ-like leaders and men should look for women who love the Lord and show a desire to serve rather than to dominate exactly the same thing I said about the opposite you see women who are cultivating godliness and a gentle spirit is what should be attractive to a Christian man and ladies that's what you should be striving to be and of course all of that just assumes they will be someone who shares your faith in Jesus to, to consciously marry a non-believer is not just ungodly and against scripture it's stupid sometimes people end up married to a non-believer because after they get married the other person says actually I'm not following Christ or sometimes people end up married to a non-believer because they become a Christian after they, they, they've been married and in that case you need to seek to love your husband or wife and so forth and and do all that and seek to win them for Christ but to actually consciously say I'm going to put myself in that situation is to make it so hard for yourself by your choice now please understand that please don't just hear me as, as saying that for some I say it out of love for you and because the scriptures say it sadly too often people make it hard for themselves later impossible for themselves later by their choice now they focus on the things that will fade rather than the things that really matter in a marriage it's hard enough this marriage thing I've been married nearly 20 years it is hard it's hard enough when you have every advantage you know I'm easy to be married to (laughs) it's hard you know talk to anyone who's married for any length of time not not Joe and Hannah they've only been married for a week you know this marriage thing is hard don't make it harder for yourself in any way so my prayer for all of us here is that as people look at the marriages of people in our church my prayer is that they might see even in our flawedness and even in our sinfulness they might see a reflection of the way Christ loved the church and the church submits to her Lord 
That is the love and the marriage in the end I want everyone to know about. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who did not come to lord it over us, but came to serve us. And we thank you that he has loved us by laying down his life on our behalf so that we might be washed clean. And so, Father, we pray for all the marriages across our whole church. We pray that husbands might work hard at loving their wives like Christ loves the church and that wives might cultivate that gentle spirit and that they might submit to their husbands as appropriate in the Lord. And Father, more than anything though, uh, we pray that people might look at our marriages, even in their brokenness and with the impact of sin, they might look at the marriages of Christians and see something of the love of Christ for his church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.